out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the writer, James Brown, who's just brought a book out titled Animal House, which talks about his life, childhood, school, plus life as a um, fanzine writer, which is fantastic, uh, the NME years, and then Loaded, as well as various other bits and pieces. This is uh, the books available from all good bookshops, and also if you go to his social media sites, Instagram being a good one, you will find how you can get a signed copy. I will just tell you one thing that slightly happened in this interview was um, my vocal seems very quiet, which is a bit of a shame. But thankfully, um, hopefully that won't spoil it too much, but I am very quiet, so I apologise. But anyway, after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. James, it's over to you. Well, just as I say in the book, when I was really young, um, I've just got these memories of lying on the carpet in my living room with my mum and dad's long record player with all this big box of singles. And the ones that I really loved are Worm, HQ Park and Lazy Sunday Afternoon by The Small Faces, Lady Madonna by The Beatles. I got stung by Elvis, uh, Judy in Disguise by John Fred and the Playboy Band. Um, they, were the, they were the tracks that I listened to and over and over again. And that's when I was really, really young and Satisfaction as well on, by the Stones on a big compilation they had. So it sounds like I've manicured that, you know, I've kind of like edited it back for, you know, a sense of call, but I haven't. That, that's, that's, they're the songs I listen to over and over again. And in addition to that, Little White Bull by Tommy Steele. And on the B side of that, there was Mud, Mud, Glorious Mud. And then also the Trumpton album. But this is like at the end of the 60s, yeah. when I was four, five, six years old. And, um, well, and it was just, so I had that experience of listening to great music when I was very young. And then when I was about eight, seven, eight, nine, you know, on top of the pops every Thursday, just all those amazing solarized acts, you know, the, the, the way that they were covered in glitter, sunglasses, draped coats, tinfoil covered guitars. I mean, the, the whole glam era was very like exciting for young kids, you know, kind of basically the bands look like sweets. They look like Christmas all the time. <laughs> And um, and they were all really easy to sing along to and clap along to. And so Susie Quattro, The Sweet, Mud. Um, my my favourite band at that time was Slade. I used to absolutely love Slade. And uh, Mark Boland, of course. I had an older mate I played football with, Pete Masters, who had the Boland albums that he used to play me. Um, so that was it, really. It wasn't, you know, I've heard people say, they had, you know, moments of epiphany seeing David Bowie or something, but it wasn't like that. It was just, um, it was just soaking it all up. We had it. My mum and dad listened to a lot of music in the house. You know, my dad in the later in the in the seventies was 
always playing Bob Dylan and my mum liked Neil Diamond and Hot Chocolate. And um, so I guess in that respect, I was lucky. You know, there was just good music in the house. Yes, amazing. Did you, I mean, during, you know, with the book, I mean, it is kind of quite amazing in, in a lot of ways, but obviously your family life, you know, there's an amazingly sad bit in the book at the beginning where you're talking about being in the playground, you know, playing with the tennis ball with all your mates and stuff. And then, you know, your mum would come and see you, you know, and look at you from the from, mm. from the road. I mean, when when you were writing this, did that, was it, were these kind of quite a lot of memories that had slightly been buried that you were starting to have to process again? Because it's uh, it was kind of quite heartbreaking. A lot well, I've got, I'm, you know, I'm definitely somewhere on the beginning of the spectrum and I've got a really detailed memory for a lot of things so strangely those memories weren't buried they were in my mind but they were like one of millions of things that were in my head you know and um that was difficult trying to sift through everything that was in there yeah. and obviously there's certain things I, that I don't remember but the things I do remember I, I remember being cleared really clear sometimes I can close my eyes and go on journeys through houses that I've lived in and re-see everything it's I've never told anyone this but it's it's quite strange being able to do that and um so yeah they were all they were they were all kind of there it was just a matter of picking the right ones but that kind of just I suppose it's a I mean when I was writing the book I kept thinking, I'm not sure this is the right balance to be writing the really personal stuff that influenced me and then the public-facing stuff that they already covered, like, you know, the years unloaded and years writing about bands on Sounds and NME. But I was having to think about how the two were connected, and I think I felt like I need to explain my behaviour a bit in my early 20s because I was very... Um, wound up and aggressive and I don't think my colleagues at NME ever realized what was going on you know when I wasn't in the office or when I was getting phone calls and my mum was in hospital again or so that's that's why I revisited those things to really to explain the influence on me yes well I often and it doesn't happen quite so much but in my you know younger days being a bit judgmental at someone's behavior and then occasionally someone would say well, you've got to remember, you know, there's probably a lot of pain that they're going through. So that behaviour, okay, you can't excuse it, but there is a reason for it, why they're acting like it. And I guess when you wrote this book and, and explained your, your, your childhood, it kind of then makes a lot, you know, the pieces kind of fall into place, don't they? Because it, it's kind of interesting, the book, because when I was, I've read it, and the first bit, and the 80s, there's this kind of real sense of almost joy and then when I was reading the, the from the 90s I don't know what you were feeling when you were writing that bit but there was almost a sense of melancholia that started to to come into the I don't know if you were feeling much more reflective thinking back at the 90s about what which bit about about my mum no or... not about your mum your childhood and the 80s period had a I kind think... of had a had a real sort of not happy, not happiness, but there was a sense of kind of excitement. Well, no, I was really happy. I was really, you know, as a kid, I was, apart from having what they now describe as an eating disorder, as part of having that and um, 
you know, my parents not getting on sometimes and my mum being ill. As a kid at school or in the street or playing football or whatever, I was really happy. And I like writing about those things. I wrote a lot about it in my book I wrote about playing football above head height. And what what I think what you were asking me about, you know, the previous question about reflecting on and thinking about things, what became apparent was as a young, typical young kid, my my kind of social life and my school life and playing out was all great and then when I was about 14 or 15 there was the rise of CMD and the fear that we were going to get blown up yes um Yorkshire Ripper was killing people in the area that I lived was the Black Panther in your area before then um yes but he only killed one person I think Leslie Whittle Right. Possibly, I don't know, but um, but the, I mean, so there was this, there was sort of, sort of had this. Suddenly, in the mid-teens, my parents broke, split up. My mum was ill. There was impending and ever-increasing mass unemployment. There was the miners' strike. Uh, late, a bit later, and and it just all went a bit dark, you know. It was, and then I think in many ways you know, the fun that I had at Loaded. And I, I don't, I wasn't melancholy in my 20s at all. Um, the fun that I had at Loaded was kind of reclaiming the, the, that, that, that sense of fun I had as a child that had got cut off, yeah. you know, being um, sort of, you know, stopped early. And um, I was very, I could have written a lot more about the stuff I did the political activity. I was a really political um, kind of 14, 15, 16-year-old going on all sorts of different marches, being face-to-face with a national front at Ellen Road when they were handing out their, their stickers and selling Bulldog. Um, you know, just being involved a little bit in, in that, that the great Rock Against Racism gig in, in Leeds with the specials and the au pairs and Misty and Roots. Mm. You know, they were just, that was a really big, really part, big part of my life, you know, and... Um, yeah, because I, in, in the book, you capture that kind of period really stunningly well, because that's, I suppose, what sort of slightly made me keep pausing and reflecting, because, you know, 79, Thatcher gets in, you mentioned there was, the, there was also the Falkland, the, the, the minor strike, Greenham Common, you know, as you mentioned with CND and the idea that we we're all going to... You know, when Ronald Reagan got in, we thought that was all over and then was Thatcher as well. So there was that. Yeah. And it was kind of interesting because you don't mention Red Wedge or the Anti-Poll Tax League within this. And and then but you've you say, you know, so I didn't know if you'd been that involved in those things. But as, as you just mentioned, well, the, um, I wasn't sure about Red Wedge. I kind of, you know, I was quite left wing by then. That seemed quite mainstream. Um, but you mentioned the Redskins and Chris. Yeah, but the, the difference was that Red Wedge, Red Wedge was essentially trying to get people to vote Labour. But if you were screaming, you know, anarcho-socialist teenager, Labour didn't seem that exciting. Whereas, uh, you know, when you met when I when I was writing about the Redskins and the Three Johns and the, uh, and people like the Newtown Erotics, and I know Billy Bragg was with Red Wedge, but also did 
these guys were doing tremendous amounts of benefits to raise money um, in Yorkshire for, for the striking miners. So it was a much more direct and immediate and necessary form of musical and political action mm. because you would just, you know, there'd be people with bucket, buckets looking for change. There'd be the money raised from the tickets for the gigs. Um, and it was, you know, as a sort of 18, 18-year-old 18 being involved in that sort of thing and going to the picket lines with my dad. It was a really, you know, it was at the sharp end. I've just been watching that drama series, Sherwood, um, with David Morrissey, and it takes me back to that sort of, I was explaining to my person I was watching it with that, the amount, it just felt like Britain was at war with itself. You know, every night you turn the television on and some other kid, some other young man had been shot in Northern Ireland. You know, it was usually young men that were dying, you know, probably a little bit my age or a little bit older, either soldiers or civilians. And it was a really conflicted, a really conflicted time. And it was my memory of looking back on that, which I, <clears throat> you know, I do go into in the book is, the big AIDS posters, mm. you know, that was, <clears throat> there was no real sense of, I think now, <clears throat> sorry, if you if you think about the way um, information about, about um, diseases and, uh, you know, the, the, trying to explain things that are going on, but with the AIDS posters, they were trying to terrify people, you know, and then that's what stigmatised um you know, stigmatized the kind of the gay community even more because it primarily was being transmitted, you know, through kind of like um, in, in that community and um, initially. And so I think those, yeah, the, the anti-AIDS and the, and the anti-drugs posters were just terrifying, you know. And but also I remember going, I remember being in Dublin when I was about 18 or anywhere, you know, going to Liverpool or, Sheffield or different cities, um, there were just people lying around on the streets, you know, absolutely fucked, not homeless people, like, you know, <coughs> smack addicts. And so when you're kind of 15, 16, 17, and you, you, you see this kind of economic disparity going on, um, I think, you know, that was really what, what was kind of feeding me and also not feeding me, but, you know, affecting me. Yeah. And you know the way to the way to deal with that at the time, I felt like just you know go on demonstrations, raise money, go to benefit gigs, and 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 so on. You know that that sort of thing was was my life. Yeah. Do you? I mean, on that point, because because something that I've slightly I can I try not to get wound up. But I do occasionally. But um, I know when Dylan Jones does his 80s and he goes about the 80s and it's the face and the Blitz kids and Spandau Ballet and Live Aid, does that ever make you feel a little bit irritated thinking, yeah, that wasn't my 80s? What, that it was all Spandau Ballet? And the face and the Blitz and everyone was it's dressed up. It's a different up. world. I mean, it doesn't irritate me because... Oh, that's good. You know, when I, when I moved to Manchester from Leeds when I was about 20, the boys that I lived with were about three years older than me. And I used to see them on Saturday night my attire at the time would be a pair of combat trousers and a T-shirt with a dead Kennedys or something on the front of it. And they'd be ironing their trousers and their shirts, reading the face. And it was just a different, even though they were from the same sort of backgrounds as me, 
they were a little bit older. And I remember when the face came out, it was a music magazine. And, you know, it was an out and out. It was just another one of Nick Logan's. He'd rebuilt the enemy or he'd changed the enemy. He'd, he'd launched Smash It's and then he launched another one, you know. And so I think um, I was surprised when Spandau Ballet made that film. And I, mean, I haven't, to be honest, I haven't seen it. But when they were talking in interviews about seeing themselves as sort of... Um, socialist soul boys because that that didn't come across from the people who liked gold you know and, and invariably if, you, if, if you know in the years since whenever they show the 80s they show you know to typify what was going on a bit and they show a, a mounted policeman smacking a, a you know a striking miner over the head with a, a baton and they show yuppies pouring champagne into chandeliers of wine glasses and champagne flutes playing gold i think <laughs> they were just they were different things were you know they were kind of it was a, it was escapist mainstream music and that was a world away from the underground scene of fanzines and yes you know kind of uh small independent clubs that i was going to manchester and bradford and hull and so on yes because um a few years ago did you get this particular publication Rip, torn, and cut fanzines. It's on no. Well, it was interesting because Claire, from who then became part of Sarah Records or started Sarah Records, this is when I sort of kind of not first came across you, but then she mentions you in here, saying that uh, you kindly met up in Leeds and spent an afternoon showing me how to make paste ups, explaining what would and wouldn't copy or print well. Well, so yes, so you're you're the eighties. The fanzine. she had a fanzine called Kavach. Yes. See, that's my memory there. That's very. I think good. she was from Harrogate or somewhere. Yeah. Well, I I've never. No, I've never seen that. You know. Um, yeah. So it was a different. It was. I mean, sadly, we seem to be heading back to those. Well, we're already knee deep in those sort of times again. You know, in sort of extreme economic disparity between the haves and have-nots. Yes, but fanzines. Your yes. fanzine was this the because there, there was the together enterprise. Um, the Enterprise Allowance Scheme, wasn't there? The uh, And the, those various things that the government had sort of brought together. So did you go on one of those Enterprise Allowance kind of things? Or um... Yeah, yeah, they were... Um, I mean, I left school. I started my fanzine in the first year of the sixth form with three mates. I left school. <clears throat> and then one of... I, and, that, you know, then one of my mates went on a youth training scheme and he said, let's print the fanzines there. And that was, you know, that was good. That meant we got really good quality um, printing and Andy got something interesting to print rather than local government and local council leaflets. And um, the Enterprise Allowance Scheme is actually quite a good idea, really, if you were already making money. Yes. Because it basically... Or cash it home, stopped. Yeah. It stopped... I mean, they should do it again now. Now, now, if you're on the equivalent of the old enterprise allowance scheme, you call a benefit sheet. Yeah. What it was was you'd get your £14 a week, which sounds nuts now. you get 28 quid a fortnight when you're on the dole. But what they did was, I think they put it, or maybe it was 24 quid, and they put it up to 28 if you went on the enterprise allowance scheme. And, and what it did was it allowed enterprise. So... 
if you were in a band or you had a market stall or you were selling fanzines or putting gigs on or whatever you kind of little side, you know, you, you, your attempts to make a living were, were suddenly you can do it without this fear of not a fear, but suddenly you are allowed to do it before then you weren't allowed to make any money if you're on the dole. Mm. Um, so a lot of people that I knew were on that because it just legitimized all the things we were doing. But even as I said in the book, Bobby Gillespie and Andrew Innes told me when I wrote some sleeve notes for, um, a box set of Schema Delica, they were still on the enterprise allowance. Yeah. Quite, quite far into Primal Scream's existence. And, um, yeah, so I did write a bit more than that in the book, but that's one of the little bits I took out. And, um, how, you know, we all went on the enterprise allowance scheme. And um, I think that's why there's so many bands in the 80s, because you had that period where you were leaving school and there was no opportunity. Well, it didn't feel like there was any opportunity. So there weren't. Kind of, there so weren't any like, opportunities. So there was like, go on the doll. There was no stigma. It was almost like a rite of passage. And then if you had that £1,000 in your bank account, you could do this enterprise allowance scheme. Which was Is that what you needed to have? £1,000. Something bizarre like that. So people would pass this £1,000 to, to show they had some money, which seemed a bit odd. Um, and then you know, know, well, the thing is, I don't remember that because I definitely didn't have a thousand pounds. Enterprise allowance, enterprise allowance, and there was another one. I don't know. Um, I mean, it, it sounds like the sort of thing they would have said, but I don't. I didn't have a thousand quid then at all. <laughs> but 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 that creative time was quite interesting because a lot of people were then you know able just to focus on being a, in a band, making music. And then they'd have that one year sort of rehearse, rehearse, you know, get a single, John Peel played it, got the John Peel session, suddenly that first album, get the transit band, go around mm. the entire country with all the small little gigs and venues that normally had an indie night on a Monday, Tuesday or Wednesday. And then they just had that momentum to almost make the second gig, uh, album um, and then possibly, you know, decide. Well, I thing. think, you know, like, you know, when people... When I see people, no, no disrespect to the name of your um, podcast, but when I see people getting excited about C86, I find it weird because I don't find it weird for them, but for me, because my mates and I who were doing fanzines, we knew all about those bands 18 months before the NME put them on that tape. Yes. And it was only six months since Neil Taylor started championing them. But, you know, for, for a year before that, you know, the, the likes of Age of Chance and uh, Big Flame and the June Brides and so on, they'd all had singles out. They'd all been like playing these tiny little clubs like, you know, the uh, Unity Club in Hull or the or the Wild Club in Manchester or Jeff Barrett's Ziggy's Club down in um, in Plymouth. So, or, or Bobby Gillespie's Splash One in in, in uh in Glasgow. Well, there was so, McGee's li The Living Room as well, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, that was the one that would be putting them on the, in the London. There was kind of... Um, the influences on that era of bands were like The Fall and Captain Beefheart and, I guess, some of the postcard bands. And with Major Chance, they were also, you know, they were into Soul and Test Department and things like that as well. So it was just... Um, I think it was I think it was those influences that just gave that new era energy because around and before then there was still the more obvious kind of punk influences at play or or, or you know what became goth you know and so the, the, 
the, te- the, the kind of like the mix of, of music that you would hear that the phono in Leeds, where a lot of the goth bands or the, you know, the punk influence bands would hang out would be Iggy or Killing Joke or Generation X or the Velvet Underground and stuff. And, and then it sort of just opened up and got lighter, you know, with people like Big Flame talking about a gang of four and the fire engines and Eto Marewa and just different types of music. More, I would see it as the CH6 is more light getting into the room. You yes. know, maybe bands stopped rehearsing in cellars. Well, I think I think there was a kind of there was a chapter in the 80s, and it was from 83 to 87, which was the years of the Smiths, wasn't it? That was a kind of moment where indie pop in that way really was something when they split up i mean i know it's a bit simplistic but then ecstasy comes along and then there's there's the next wave of bands that start to move in and that's where you get a certain yes you get the dance scene and people like yeah that's that's a very good analysis of, of of the shifts yeah and then you also got seattle coming in in sort of 1989 1990 with you know yeah. and then there was 4AD with the throw moves and pixies and by then you know no one really wanted the next darling buds or the primitives or the the mighty lemon drops next album it was like well we had that 5 years ago and there's not they're not going to sound that interesting and then there's also that next wave of 16 year olds that come along who were just going yeah forget it granddad you know we don't want to know about the smith it was certainly um a huge amount of new bands emerging by the end of the 80s, you know, and, um, you know, the bands that I was talking about there, the C86, some of the C86 era bands or the, you know, the My Fanzine era, um, you know, that, that they weren't called indie. It was like the charts were the alternative charts. Yes. People weren't calling them indie bands then, I don't think. I, I imagine if I got a copy of My Fanzine now, I don't think that word would be in it. I think there was just a sense that there were there really was an underground and there was a print underground. Um, when I look back, I've got somewhere I've got a folder of about like 40 or 50 fanzines in. And, you know, they were really diverse. You know, Liverpool had the, the end, which my memory was that the end was about football as well as music. When I helped Peter republish it, I republished a compilation of the end. There's no football in it at all. The only references to football are people wearing bobble hats going to the match. Right. You know, there's the experience of watching it, but there's, there's no football writing in it. There's more poetry than football. Yeah. And then you went to Newcastle where Viz was an independently produced magazine. And that basically started out as just as a fanzine, you know, became this huge comic, ended up selling a million copies. And then there'll be, but all our, most of the fanzines were quite flimsy. And then there'd be some really big, thick ones like, um, vague, which was full of psychogeography and Manson and the Angry Brigade, as well as things like, you know, Adam and the Ants and, and the Southern Death Cult. I used to love Vague. I thought it just looked absolutely fantastic for me. That that was that was the fact that that was just like the the best fanzine around Vague. And then of course there were just hundreds of other little magazines, you know, from as I said in the book, I kind of knew all of these places with never having been there, you know. Um, Paisley, Greenock, uh, Spalding Links. I can just, Malvern Wells. I can remember all these, these seeing the titles and the addresses again and again and again and, and, and posting fanzines out to places and getting them sent back. 
And wherever I went in the country, I would, whether it was to follow the Free Johns around or Big Flame or Serious Drinking or the Redskins and Newtown Neurotics, you'd always meet another kid with a fanzine. Right. Always. Yes. Every gig, there was people, there were people. I mean, there was a big fanzine scene in Leeds. There was tongue in cheek, whippings and apologies, nag, 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 Molotov comics, which had been an influence on me, Raising Hell, which the guy that I started to tack on was Ag with, uh, Ben. He, he produced, there were, there were absolutely loads of these. And uh, Manchester had debris. Uh, there was one from Preston called Noise and Noise. Uh, there were Furious Apache in Scotland, uh, Slow Dazzle. I mean, I could just go on and on, beaten to the bunch in your, I mean, it's all, it's all kind of coming back out now. <laughs> I didn't get them out. I looked at them when I wrote the book. But these were like my, the, I mean, I wasn't close to most of these people but they were like the mates I wanted to have at school. Yeah. But my mates at school were like kids that I played football with or just I was in class with. They didn't, they didn't share that interest in that world of underground bands. You know, a lot of my mates were into like heavy rock and Black Sabbath and uh, ACDC and, and old bands like Led Zeppelin and Hawkwind and Steppenwolf and stuff like that. Or, you know, as modern as they would get would be the Stranglers. So, um, I only, you know, I only had a couple of mates who I'd go to gigs with, whereas out there, especially when I left school, the rest of the country, through John Peel, through the Enemy Letters pages, and mainly through this underground network of fanzine writers and and uh, readers, there was just this web all over the country, and it was, you know, it was. Um, so I think we all kind of knew about, and the readers of those magazines, of those fanzines, knew about the C86 bands way before, you know, kind of Neil Taylor started writing them about them and maybe Kath Carroll and Deli Fideli in the NME. Yeah. Yes, well, absolutely. So you're, um, my God, that's, there's a lot there. Because you go to Berlin, don't you, with, with serious drinking, and there you meet my, my bloody Valentine, who are a sort of... Um, recording at that stage aren't they in the in the sort of this is the well, they weren't recording they were just staying there they my blood i i i um i got to know serious drinking and they asked me if i wanted to go to berlin with them which i did and i had a job then i had a job in the hmv shop and um it was quite a lot of money compared to what i was getting on my paper round so i got the money together and flew to berlin went to this venue where they were supposed to be on that. And I got there like nine o'clock and the, the club opened at like 11 or something. And there was just this band on stage practicing or, or sound checking. And it was Kevin Shields and his friends from My Bloody Valentine. And this again was a few years before they started making records. And I don't know if you remember, but when they first made singles, they were quite, I think they were on the same level as the primitives. And it was, it was quite kind of post-primal, 60s, kind of pebbles, poppy, punky sort of sound. Yeah, because I did an interview with David, who was the original, um, David, who was the original uh, vocalist for the band. And he, yeah. he mentions going to Berlin because I, don't, I think someone just offered them a place. So they were very, and I listened to those early records and they, they were nothing like they became. Yeah, I mean, I like, I like those early records and they... Um, my two memories was, I didn't put this in the book, was they didn't smell too good. <laughs> and a bath for a long time, which I think they admitted themselves. And they also said, you're moving. I said, oh, where do you guys? Because obviously no one 
no one at all at that point, or indeed for another 18 months, have ever heard of my bloody Valentine, apart from a few, probably a few friends back in, in, in Ireland. Um, and they said, oh, we're moving out of the room in the KOB, the Cobb squat that you're moving into. So they were kind of just squatting. And um, it's interesting how many people I met when they were young. You know, it's kind of like I met Gillespie and the Mary Chain on a march. There was a there was a march. It was the week, I think, of the Heisel disaster. And there was a C&D march that, that culminated in a concert at the Kelvin Hall in, in uh, Glasgow. And the Pastels were playing and a band called Wet, Wet, Wet were playing. <laughs> they were like a soul band. They hadn't become the big pop stars yet. They were just starting out. And I can remember being in Kelvin Gardens in front of the university, I think it was, and just seeing Douglas and Jim and William walking through with their thick kind of loaves of curly hair sitting on top of their head, all wearing black. And then Bobby and um, and Chris from Slow Dazzle introduced me. And at that point, the Mary Chain were the only kind of um, only band in that sort of alternative scene that felt like they were going to really, maybe they were going to change something. Maybe it was going to be like an earthquake and, yeah. you know, it would, that, that's, that's what it felt like. Because um, interestingly, another one of those moments that 87 was the first Glastonbury I went to, and that was your first Glastonbury. I just thought of that because you talked about not smelling very good because I can, no one ever went washed at, glass, uh, at festivals in those days. Yeah. So did, when you went to the first, your first Glastonbury, did you get quite enamoured by the experience and think this is, this is going to well, be... I actually think I might have got that wrong in the book. I think I might have gone in 88. What, what I do know is that I've got no memory of the music of when I first went to Glastonbury because I just thought it was a hippie festival was not something that I would naturally have been drawn towards. And I think I must have gone the first year the enemy sponsored it. And um, But I liked it. I liked seeing all these fucking mad people. And it really was very different to festivals now. It was... It was probably closer to what it had been in the early 70s when it started. And um, there was a lot of the people that were kind of dropped out of mainstream life who were living in, you know, they, they became known as the convoy. But that sort of alternative, alternate lifestyle of festivals and living in big old army trucks and um, yes. having an independent culture. There was a lot, there was a big sense of that kind of community at, at Glastonbury at the time. And um, I liked it. I liked wandering around the fields and seeing people absolutely off their faces, you know, and just the way it was just a very different. I liked the freedom of it. And, uh, yeah, it was just different to anything I'd, I'd been. I never went to a music festival when I was a, you know, before I, before I became a music writer. Um, they just didn't really appeal to me you know and also they were expensive you know they were kind of you know when an album was costing like three pounds 90 or something going to a festival might have been a fiver for two days or something and <laughs> you know so you know outrageous <laughs> yeah it sounds bonkers doesn't it <laughs> but then your your transition because not only were you into sort of i don't know big flame stump and bog shed but you also got you I wasn't a massive stump fan I like the band that they that predated them, the Five Go Down at the Sea. Oh yes. And I wasn't a massive Bogshed fan either. They were, 
these were just bands like Bogshed, Yeah, Yeah, No. They were bands you'd write about because they were there. You know, they were coming through and they were all very influenced by The Fall and The Nightingales and Beefheart. Um, And they were nice guys, you know, they usually they were kind of, whether they were men or women, and they were kind of, that was the scene, you know, that you would report on. Yeah. Um, But I don't, you know, I don't listen to the records now. <laughs> but you also embraced dance music. Can you remember with the NME, you had these two, didn't you? Yeah. So you I, got... Well, the reason, how I got into... Well, that, I mean, I mean, I kind of like... I was always... Although I kind of like, you know, would write about a particular type of music, as I've just said, it's essentially because it was there, you know, and I think... If you stood in the one in twelve club in Bradford or Brannigans and Leeds and and and, and the the bands on are the Nightingales and Bogshed, that's who you write about. You know that's you know if you're listening to John Peel and then you see this bands coming from John Peel show to you, you know that's who I would go and see. Um, but I I kind of like quite varied music and. When I went to Manchester to live, I got a, I had a girlfriend in Manchester, so I went over there and I lived with Big Flame, of Alan from Big Flame, and Greg and Alan and Dill had this absolutely brilliant club called the Wild Club. And the DJs were Greg and Dill from the band and Dave Haslam, who had a fanzine called Debris. Dave's obviously a respected uh, music writer now and a DJ. And he was DJing then, and they were just playing stuff that I hadn't heard before. You know, they were playing things like Trouble Funk and Mantronics. And, you know, if I went back to Leeds, that was on a Thursday night. If I went back the next night, I went to the Phono, it would still be the, exactly the same songs, which were great songs, you know, whether it was, you know, um, Dancing With Myself or, you know, uh, War Dance by Killing Joke or, you know, whoever it was, Iggy, you know, that that's it was dark. And then... You know, but in uh, at the Wild Club, they were kind of mixed up hip hop and and kind of uh, it you wouldn't be unusual to hear Trouble Funk going into the fire engines or something like that at their little club at the Man Alive in Manchester. So that's really where and Greg Greg was really Greg O'Keefe Greg Keefe was really he was the guitarist in Big Flame and he was really into jazz as well and kind of like. Um, he just had a lot of very different records, you know, and I so spent quite a lot of time listening to Greg's record collection and then hearing Dave and Dylan Greg playing. And that, that was really where, you know, it kind of, it was good for me to hear that stuff because then music started to change. You know, the Beastie Boys were the most obvious um, and Run DMC were the most obvious exponents of, of, of kind of where rap was, was, was kind of getting rock to back it up. And then, but then moving to London to write for sound, suddenly being able to just go to the town and country club and see Curtis Mantronic or or, the, or go to the same venue and actually see Trouble Funk play. Or, but I mean, in Leeds, I'd seen Chuck Brown and the Soul Searchers at the uni, who were absolutely amazing. Um, but when I was on sounds, I was deliberately writing about a lot of different music because I wanted the enemy to notice me. <laughs> and also, I was trying to make a living. You know, I was. You know, obviously, I was. I was wanting to write about things, but I was wanting to eat as well. So that's really, that's the period when my musical taste really broadened. 
Yes. Did you have a lot of people often mention their moment where they first took ecstasy? Did you do you have a can can you remember that moment if you ever took ecstasy? No. I can't. I can't remember the last time I took it either. Oh, well, that's good. I can't, I can't I, um that's a good question. Do you know what some it's been quite good doing these interviews. It's somebody, some kid, young guy that wrote that bought my magazine this week. Sorry, some guy that's bought my my book, not a magazine. Um, he asked me if I've had, if I had ever met Kurt Cobain this week, and I had to think about it. And I had I remember meeting Kurt, and this and I, this is the same sort of question. I I can't remember the first time I took ecstasy, but I mean, I was I didn't. My focus at that time was on trying to make the enemy better. Yeah. So there were some enemy staffers who just, or enemy writers who just, just became drenched in ecstasy. And, uh, you know, but it was hard to miss what was going on in central London at that time. You know, I'd already been to a couple of the clubs in Tooley Street with Martin, who was serious drinking when they were just, they were kind of soul clubs around Tower Bridge. and. Then when those guys discovered that you could mix, you know, kind of house music with the wooden tops, and they, st- I mean, that was people forget that that the that the rise of house music in in the UK stemmed from, you know, um, Weatherall and and Oakenfold and those guys mixing music up. It was about breaking down almost the different types of specialist radio show or the the different sections of the enemy and and. and mixing all of that music together. And that's, that's what made that period really exciting was just that discovery that you could, that you could mix it all up. Um, but no, I mean, obviously ecstasy became commonplace, but I don't, I mean, I remember being when the Mondays, Mondays, the Happy Monday supported New Order in the GMEC Centre in Manchester. That was 89, they were doing the Technique album weren't they yeah but then and then not long after the monday's headline there and i can remember being at one of those gigs on a and just dancing the whole night and it was like a um aerobics class it was so different to being down the front five years before at a stiff little fingers gig or whatever however long before it was when you maybe i don't know it was 10 years before or just jumping up and down and slamming about everyone had their own space and was just working out that's what it was kind of but no, I don't, I don't remember the. I mean, remember the first time I took other drugs, but not, not ecstasy. Yeah, I think it just became so common. It wasn't like. It just became such a, you know, that music and and ecstasy became just as as common as as alcohol and and music had been before in clubs. Yes, and the NME during that stage, there's always these kind of periods. Because I did an interview with Nick Kent who started in the early 70s at the NME or mid. And yeah. he said there were still journalists there waiting for the Beatles to reform. And he obviously thought, no, granddad, they've been and gone. This is punk. And they, they... Did you yeah. also have that same experience when you were at the NME, thinking there's people here still harking on about the good old days in the five years ago, whereas things are changing? And No, and you... no, that, no, that wasn't the case. Um, when I joined the NME, it was in quite a dysfunctional place in that it was really, really schizophrenic in terms of the quality of the paper each week and the subjects of the paper. The point I make in Animal House was 
it, it would be diverse in its cover choices, but then there would be if, if they sometimes to show that they could be diverse, they'd do something like a thrash metal special. You know, they'd they'd have features on Anthrax and Metallica or whoever Slayer, and then the following week there'd be nothing at all anywhere in the paper. So from a editing point of view or from being a fan of that music point of view it just wasn't working and the, the, I mean it's certainly uh, Ian Pye gave me my job but he wasn't a strong editor in that when I got there really the guy in charge I felt was Stuart Cosgrove who Stuart was a formidable operator he was brilliant at identifying a trend or uh, you know a special special edition uh, and um but a lot of his interests would have just been better suited for probably the face. You know, they were they were quite niche. A lot of the things he was into were quite hard to get your hands on, like, you know, particularly, you know, a lot of like Chicago house records or shag music from Carolina. Um, and obviously, if you're on the NME and London Records or Island Records were paying for you to go and meet these people, it was accessible. But if you were like, you know, a young person living in Derby, it wasn't quite so easy to get hold of that that kind of lifestyle or, or that music and um so it was focused on new things and things that were happening um but it just seemed to be a little bit all over the shop yes. you know which yeah. was a pity because sometimes it looked great sometimes it had great covers and it still had good it still had good writers there but the enemy that that really changed my life was, you know, probably the end of Nick Logan's period and into Neil Spencer's period when there'd be a real defined sense of it being the same paper every week, only with different bands in it. And the things that I absolutely loved about it that inspired it was the sense of, um, uh, you know, first of all, it's confidence, the, the sense that you feel like you're in a really good part of a really good community or a really good club and, you'd start to see the kind of like the cross-reference between different bands and different writers, the quality of the writing. I, I found it totally inspiring when I found the music papers, um, which I, obviously I discovered them before I started my fanzine because it just seemed to be a place where you could do all the things you were telling, they were telling me not to do at school. Yes, you know, absolutely. I mean, as, I mean, did you also embrace the kind of the grunge period with alongside the, because there had been the Chicago house scene and acid house scene. Did you also enjoy that kind of world of Seattle rock? Not massive, not massively. <laughs> um, you know, you're talking about Mudhoney, Tad, all of those guys. Did, I mean, they just looked a bit shit, I thought. I mean, I kind of, you know, maybe it goes back to being kind of seven, watching how bands looked on Looked. It, it, I think if a band looks good, you kind of, it's another battle, you know, it's another part of the battle that's that's winning you over. And um, I just thought they all looked a bit of a fucking mess. But also <laughs> I remember, you know, to be fair, it was sounds, the end of Tony Stewart's sounds that were championing those bands. Yeah. And um, I think, I mean, I love the Pixies. I really like the Pixies. I went on the road with them in California and did, a, did an enemy cover for them. And... Um, Adrian Thrills loved the throwing music. So, so you know, that, that sort of 4AD end of it, which wasn't really quite so noisy. I like Dinosaur Junior. I saw them and saw Jay Maskis a few times. I thought they were a really good band. Um, 
but I kind of like, um, in some respects, I like noise, but I also quite like songs. Yeah. In the book, you mention you mention Ken Kesey, but you also mention Ken Campbell. Is this the Ken Campbell who wrote a nine-hour play called The Warp, or is this a different Ken Campbell? Can you well, no, he was a sort of performance artist, wasn't he? Yes. Yeah, because I, I used to see I used to see him and David Rappaport on the CND marches. Right, and I was kind of. But, but I think he was a big influence on Bill Drummond. That's what. That's the. Jimmy. Yeah, that's that's the um, the context that he, that he's mentioned in in Animal House. Yeah, because because I did an interview with Neil Oran, who also co-wrote the Warp with a Ken Campbell, and I wondered if you were referring to that same Ken Campbell. That it might Campbell. be. I, I don't know a great deal about him apart from. You know, you just see him cropping up on all sorts of different things. I think he was in Bolt. I was watching Bolty Towers the other day. My little boy, I think he's in that. Yeah. But um, <clears throat> he would always be on the CND marches. Him and David Rappaport, who was um, an actor. Yes, that's right. Because it's kind of interesting your timing when you, you know, we get into the. So we have the Thatcher years, the anti poll tax period, and then John Major years come along. And then the death of Kurt Cobain is, is when you start loaded, which is which is very day it's we finished it. And um, I mean that was a really unusual day. As I said, I'd met I'd met Kurt with um, the legend who became known as Everett True. Yeah. When, when I his real name's Jerry, but when I first met Jerry, he was um, the legend and he had a fanzine and he had and he had um, records out I think his first ever record on creation was the legend and then him and Alan had fallen out but they were both obsessive music fans Jerry's level of purity and his obsession with music was so intense but um he was a good writer he was quite comical at times and he'd worked on the enemy and then I think he moved to um I don't know when he moved to Melody Maker but I don't think I had anything to do with it I think he'd gone by the time I got to the enemy I don't know but um he was good friends with Kurt. I remember him bringing him over. He 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 bought him. Um, he bought him over to me the, the the night they played Reading, but he was bringing him to introduce him to me, not the other way around. Because oh, this is James. He's a pizza editor at the NME, and he and he came over and and, and we had a chat. And um, you know, obviously they were the standout band because they. they they just hit that sweet spot. And, uh, you know, I'll give you an example. I really like really like that um, Nirvana Unplugged MTV, yeah. where you can actually hear the songs. So, um, yeah, I think other people were just kind of writing about that stuff. I mean, all of those bands got covered in Enemy, but I wasn't writing about them. No, it was just that kind of, you, you know, you look back and you can see little chapters happening, especially in youth culture and music. And I, you know, that moment where that was, you know, grunge, had finished really, hadn't it, at that point? And there was too many men with the look and the hair and the jacket. And I mean, they, they just look like black, sorry to interrupt, they just look like black Sabbath roadies. Yeah, they did. And you they know what I mean? They kind of like. And they were whining about their stepdad living in small towns. Can I, I guess it wasn't really about how they looked, but, you know, it, was really, it wasn't. We didn't like their biceps, did we? But then, yeah, so so one of the things, because briefly, one of the things that really surprised me in, in the, your, your loaded period and I'm sure everyone's going to ask you this. Is this you did a, this this test on white jeans, okay? And you used all these different 
washing fabrics. Yeah. And you said that Ecova came out the best. Now, I remember yeah, they... going through an Ecova phase and I thought it was dreadful. So was this was this actually something that you found a fact? Yeah, no, it, was it was true. I mean, I mean, it wasn't a there was some structure to the test in the we were having a lot of the really good content in Loaded came about because we would just uh, from things that we were talking about and I would just think oh that would make a great story and somebody was Danny Baker was doing a an updated version of the Daz you know the doorstep challenge sort of yes. thing and it was but it was straight it wasn't ironic or funny and we just somebody was like having a go at the ads and moaning about it and I said why don't we really just try and see which does wash white so we sort of reenacted the personal ads and my memory throughout the 70s was all these squeaky clean looking kids in white vests and shorts jumping over styles and splashing in puddles in woods and they all looked idyllic and um totally different to if I came in with my school uniform covered in mud from playing football where you just get a bollocking um wouldn't be a smiling mom like you know smelling the <laughs> smelling the washing powder as it came out of the washing machine or anything like that and um so we set off down to um Wimbledon Common with a load of white Levi's from that we blagged from Levi's and a lot of white vests we bought from Lawrence Corner Army and Navy and um we just did what the ad did we jumped in and out of the ponds and Wimbledon Common rubbed up against trees fell in dived into muddy puddles full of leaves and and uh, and they, we just made them absolutely filthy then we went back to somebody's house poured curry over them beer over them i think we threw some burnt matches on them that sort of thing we just put as many different stains as we could and then we sent the office junior and the work experience off to a a laundrette of a huge pile of uh, change but we were really insistent make sure every every outfit was in a different plastic bag and it was attached to a different washing powder and the one that came back whitest was ecova but to be honest i mean they weren't rigorous conditions <laughs> they could easily have got it on or it might have been it might have been that they put so much of it in because i don't think the washing powder came back and it might have been they just put so much in or I don't think Ecova were using it to tell the world that they were going to make no, things white. I was, I was just kind of surprised. And also, just there was also in the book, you mentioned you're going to, a, you were at a dinner party with, I think, your wife and a woman called Sarah. And you said, she said something and then I broke down. But you don't say what she said. Can you remember what she said? Or is that not something that you wanted to say? I mean, this was a lot later. This was after I'd, this was six months after I'd been through rehab and, and stopped drinking and taking drugs. She was just, pretty much I think she was my second girlfriend when I was about 12 or 13 and she was just talking about some stuff from when we were kids and it just it tripped some stuff in me you know it, it kind of like right I guess some stuff that was just maybe it made me think about when my mum was ill or something like that but I think what happened was you know when I spoke to the the, the people that helped me get clean like the doctors and stuff and the, and the counsellors they said that so when he stopped taking cocaine, what had happened was that my my um, you know my brain wasn't creating serotonin because it was so used to it being artificially created by the um, by the stimulants. So it was just I mean I'd never really been depressed, and that's what it was. I was just I was just like they gave me some sertraline to jumpstart my 
my nerve endings and yes my god that was quite a moment wasn't it but it wasn't no it wasn't that wasn't something that i deliberately chose not to put in it was just she was just talking about a period when i think she was talking about a period when my parents were splitting up my mum was in and out of hospital and and i think it just um it just tipped me, me over the edge a bit yes and just i mean I, I sort of vaguely said it at the beginning but but you, when you talk about your loaded period compared to the 80s period there seems a lot more reflection as if i don't know if i got this right but you were you know because there was a lot of tragedy isn't there in the loaded period there was people dying people struggling you know in retrospect i suppose at the time you were all having a good time did did your did did writing that bit feel quite different to write in the early years because the book feels like there's it's like a definite half time and then there's a definite second half isn't there and i just wondered when you were sitting there writing this you felt no i mean i did i had a brilliant time at loaded it was obviously it was just absolutely fantastic i think it's it's 20 years since I started it, I think. Maybe it's even... No, it's not. It's 30 years. It's 30 years. I'm, I'm obviously being 57 now. I was, I've been writing a book over the last six years. I've been a parent since I was 36. Um, so I've been a parent for like 21 years. I've uh, spent a lot of time... Uh, being sober and clean myself and also spending a lot of time with other recovering addicts and then talking to people who have actually got active drug and drink problems, you just become more aware of the consequences of, of your behaviour. So the book was written from the perspective of somebody that's seen both sides of the of of the coin, really, you know, the the, the fun. Well, and there's there's basically there's three sides. There's there's the there's the the fun. And then there's the bit when it stops being fun. And then there's the bit, if you're lucky, when you get out of it and get beyond it. Um, so it was just in, it was just written from a different point of view, you know, rather than if I'd written the book when I was, you know, 31 or 32 or something, it, it would have, it, it wouldn't have had that, that reflection. Uh, and also I think when you become a parent, you just, um, you, you just become more conscious that you're not the center of the world. And um so it's just that I'm just slightly more. I mean, I mean, sometimes I read things about me. I like see things on like, I just think these people have got no idea what I really like, nor have I been for many, many years. So, um, you know, I think even the stuff about, you know, people are going, people are talking in social media and articles about or in interviews about the recovery period that I wrote about and how I seem different then. But even that is like, you know, I've, I've been clean and sober for 24 years. So it's just, it's just a different person. And I think, I mean, I could have just written a whole book about excessive and funny behavior at Loaded, but it, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to do more than that. And the publishers wanted me to do more than that. I mean, nobody knew about the kind of some of the personal things that were going on in my life. And nobody in the public domain had really known too much about you know, my um, dealing with my addiction and, and and getting through that and who helped me with that. So I just felt, I guess I feel a, to a degree, as I say in Animal House, that I'm, the reason I'm quite open about, about writing about that stuff in there is because we were just, 
flying the flag and banging the drums so much for getting fucked up and loaded. Yes. It would be irresponsible of me not to at least offer a different perspective on the consequences of that. Yeah. I mean, I love, I love drinking, David. I love drinking. I loved how it made me feel. And in the music business and the, the business of journalism, heavy drinking during the day were not seen as a, a negative thing. And then certainly if you look at iconic artists who have lived uh, or who have uh, died, you know, their, their images have, have been buffed up with their excessive drug and drink use. And, and, and I was kind of enthralled to, to all of that. People like John Belushi, whose film Animal House, I named the book after uh, Iggy, I guess Keith and Ronnie in the Stones. Um, you know, just that kind of, it, it's just part of the, the rock and roll armour, isn't it? You know, kind of drugs and drink and, and, and going well, way, way, way back before white guys were playing guitars. You know, if you, if you go back to the blues musicians, um, you know, the problems they were having with, or, or their reliance on smack or whatever, and the jazz musicians as well. So it was, it's just, it's part and parcel of certain aspects of the history of, of, of music and film. And uh, yeah, that was kind of, I was attracted to that. Yes. Well, absolutely. Because when we were growing up and you'd hear musicians talking about why they got into music, they often used to say it's sex, drugs and rock and roll. And obviously you realized about 20 years ago, someone said, don't, don't say that anymore because you should be in prison now. So um, perhaps forget the sex, drugs and rock and roll. And um, yeah, because we grew up. Being in a band, if you initially, I mean, there's lots of different motivators for being a band, but actually being in a successful band, if you're a young uh, man or woman, is actually a fantastic thing, you know, and, and it isn't just men. I mean, pretty much quite early on in this, I'm going to have to be careful who, who I mention here, but quite early on in my days at the enemy, a very, very well-known female singer rang the office to talk to one of the writers because the writer had walked in on her fucking the support act before the gig and she was married. And, it, and it, you know, there was, um, it, it wasn't just, you know, it's not just guys that behave like that, you know, when, when, when they're out on the road. And um, obviously music was more male dominated in those days, but it, it was, um, I think, there are a few better things that you could possibly do than than be a you know young musician or even I guess an old musician if it's still exciting and and being off going around the world. I think that's that thing I put when I first went the first time I went abroad as a paid music journalist rather than as a fanzine writer going with bands I knew was when I went to Holland with Popoli itself and I mean neither the band nor I could really believe that we were doing the same thing that we'd both been doing when we met in Huddersfield at the Peace Hall, but we were getting paid to do it. Yeah. You know, I was writing an article about about Popular Itself for the cover of Sounds, and they were getting to play in, in different cities in Holland and getting paid enough to make it worth their while. And it was just like a school trip. I mean, I mean we were in our teens. It was yeah. only two years since I'd been on a school trip. You know, so it was like, um, I think that's the other thing is that the point I make about Weller's writing, about, you know, how how amazing his run of writing of singles in the jam were when he was in his late teens, that 
you know, when I was an NME writer, I can I left because I thought I was too old. That's why I left the enemy. I was 25. I thought I'd had my go and I felt like it was time for somebody else, you know, Sarah Champion or somebody to come in and, uh, and, and be the, you know, the mouthy young writer and, and, and kind of explode all over the papers. And so that was a key. I mean, I didn't think I'd be 57, David. I thought I would probably finish at 33 and a third. You know, that I didn't think I'd get to like be 45 or genuinely, I don't, I don't mean that in a, in a dramatic way. I had no concept. I can remember the financial advisor coming in to NME and this kind of quite serious, straight looking person talking to some of the staff and then watching them having a long conversation with Steve Lamack, who sat opposite me when we were in the second office we had. And after they went, I said, Steve, what's that? What are you doing? He said, oh, that's that letter we got last week. It's a financial advisor. If you put away 300 quid a month from your wages, when you're kind of like 40, you'll have uh, whatever it would be, whatever Steve's got now. And I just remember thinking, this is fucking nuts. Why would you do that? I want my money because I want to go, you know, I want to go and buy, I don't even know, I guess I want to buy drink. I don't really know. I can't remember what I was spending my money on at the enemy because I got all the music for free and I got a lot of travel for free, but I just had no concept. And that sort of intensity of that, that short-sightedness and that living in the moment was, was just so much of what was driving me, really. I kind of getting away. It was more about getting away from where I'd been rather than planning for what was going to happen when I was middle-aged. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I had no comprehension of what, what my life... And, you know, now, actually, my life is really nice. I've got a night... I've got a really... I'm happy and I've got a good life, you know, and it's, it might be good for me that I'm not actually doing all that stuff anymore. That's never occurred to me before that actually going at a slower pace might have been good for me. Because um, Alan McGee in the last three years in lockdown went on these walks where he still does, doesn't he? And he lost an enormous amount of weight and now is um, looking trim and slim and much Yeah, 15 miles a day, he told me. 15 miles a day. It's amazing. I know, 30,000 steps. So, yes, it does happen. But if you could have told your 16-year-old self some words of wisdom when they were starting out, is there anything that you would have just said, oh, I would do this or don't do this, went to your 16-year-old Well, you know what the big issue just asked me, then write that piece they have, which is that, I think I'd get more good advice now from the 16-year-old I think the 16-year-old, 17-year-old me had a better take on what was happening. <laughs> I do. I do think that. I think the... Uh, yeah, I do. I think they had a clearer vision of what life could be and where... And, and what... You know, I'd love to have that drive again. You know, I'd love to have that focus of... I mean, I just wanted to work on the enemy. I couldn't... I couldn't comprehend doing anything else. And I, I wanted to be a footballer. And then when I didn't, I was quite a good footballer when I was a kid, but I was very skinny. And I used to play for teams that were older than me at school. Um, Did you want to be Alan Clark? Yeah, I did. I wanted to be a footballer. And then the first year we had trials, they didn't send me for trials. So I knew then, I knew straight away. So I wasn't, you know, having that dream and having it taken away from me. And then I, um, and then I, I also, um, I, 
I kind of, I didn't really want to be a rock star or anything. I don't know why I didn't want that. I just kind of thought it would be better being the writer, you know? I don't know why that. I mean, I did have a band. We were pretty popular in Leeds, but I didn't. Weirdly, this is a this is a pop an ex pop star who I've never spoken to. Nice. No, who, yeah, yeah. Who, I must have spoken to because I've got a number, but ringing me. <laughs> That's strange. I was turning that off. Um, and um, so I so the drive and and the ambition that I had. I mean, you mentioned earlier that there weren't many opportunities. When I left school, I genuinely only knew two guys with jobs mm. who had left school the same year as me. One worked in his dad's greengrocers and one had left the year before. In those days, if you got an apprenticeship, you could leave age 15. And, and this other guy I was in the class with had gone and become an apprentice butcher. And I knew another guy called Varka, who was a year older than me. And he wanted to be a doctor. and in between finishing his A-levels and getting his results, he got a job on a temp agency. We used to go to his house after school and he would tell us about what he'd been doing. It was just weird to say, I remember him being working in a dynamite company or, you know, um, what they called um, a quarry, right, you know, yes. some sort of open mining or quarrying <laughs> and, and talking about just sitting there. I thought he'd be blowing things up, but he was just sitting in an office putting files you know, putting paper in files. So it sounds strange to say that now. So the, the lack of opportunities of employment when I was leaving school meant I could just see this little bit of light at the end of a tunnel. And that was the possibility of getting on this paper that would allow me to do what I did, what I was enthusiastic about, which was music and and, and also to a degree politics. Yes, blimey, you're Well, look, James, this has been amazing. And thank you again. I've really loved the book. I've really loved the book. It's been just amazing, you know. So um, Barbara Ellen told me, you know, Barbara Ellen, who's she yes. worked with, uh, she wrote for my magazine, Loaded and Show. So it was, uh, I bought her onto the NME. She said that you were infused about it. Have you had her on? No. She would be a good interview. I mean, Barbara used to live with Jarvis. Right. Which people probably don't know. And she was a writer like me from when she was very, very young. I first met her on um, Zigzag, and then I then I opened an envelope from her. She was in the same pile as Stuart McConey. Yes, and, and I, I remember this bit where she um, she's quite rock and roll in the book as well, isn't she? She's quite rock and roll. Yes. There's, believe me, there's a lot of things I took out about Barbara <laughs> and I in the book. <laughs> but uh, she would be a really good interview, I think, because... She um, was such a brilliant writer. I remember her writing something about Norman Tebbit. I, I only threatened to resign from the enemy twice. And one was when they took something out that she'd written about Norman Tebbit or, uh, or his family in a ghost dance review. It was so brutal. She was such an acerbic writer. I mean, very much following in that line of Antonella Back and Stephen Wells and... Judy Birch and Tony Parsons and Paul Morley, those people who just were totally unafraid just to get the knife out. And then another, yeah, so. Well, I love the line about the, you did some, was it fragrance? And she said the winning one was like, smelled like a rapist. Yeah, it's sort of, yeah, I mean, she's, Barbara's a great writer. Yeah, that's oh, right. Look, thank you very much. Yes, I've enjoyed look. it. And also, can I just say, if anyone's listening to this who wants a copy of Animal House, Waterstones have um, have messed up their distribution 
service. So new books are struggling to get in there. So if somebody wants a book that's signed and dedicated, um, I can do that. If they just go on my social media at James James Brown, Twitter and Instagram, or of course the bookseller.org of all the independent bookshops. And and if you want it fast and cheap, Amazon as well. So Mm. that's where you get it from. There you go. Well, look, thank you ever so much. It's been thanks, David. Take care. Thanks, James. Bye bye. I really enjoyed the interview. Cheers. Bye bye. And there you go. That's that's it, dear listener. The end. And obviously a bit disappointed with my vocal being that quiet. But never mind. That's life. Anyway, a massive thank you to James Brown for giving me the time for that. That's been um, his life and his book, Animal House, which is available, as he said, from all good bookshops and also, well, not Waterstones, probably. Um, but online, do check it out. And also you can, um, if you want to contact me for some reason, you can on Facebook... Instagram, Twitter, you can just do C86 Show. Also, all these have been archived, so you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. That's true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.